Okay, I think we're live. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Free Trail Friday. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman. Hope you guys are having an awesome day wherever you are. Very happy to have everybody here, including a star-studded group of panelists. And today we're going to be tackling a big subject, uh, that being sort of the present and the future of trail running. And I am joined by some amazing guests to tackle this big subject with. I am joined by Mario Fraioli, podcaster, coach, and author of the Morning Shakeout newsletter, which I'm sure you're all subscribed to. I'm joined by Sabrina Little, a uh, professional athlete for Hoka, and a writer and a philosophy professor, and Zoe Rome, the editor-in-chief at Trail Runner Magazine and a very strong trail runner in her own right. And uh, I feel quite, uh, I don't know, not unworthy of the, the uh, mind power, the brain power on this Zoom call here. But uh, my goal is to help moderate an important conversation. And we're very happy everybody is here joining us. I want to emphasize on the front end, that if you are watching, get in the chat, make sure you guys are interacting. Uh, again, this is going to be a big topic. We're talking about sort of the changing landscape in trail running and how we can all be prepared for the future of the sport and be good stewards of the sport. So if there are burning topics that you'd like us to tackle in this conversation, please do get in the chat and make those known. And I'll do my best to monitor that. It's a little bit difficult, but uh, I'm getting some external help this week. So please do make sure you get in the chat. We'd love to get you guys involved. Um, and a big thank you to Aura Ring, who is our sponsor for the Free Trail Friday series. If you guys are in the market for this cool piece of wearable technology, you can find a link in the show notes for a six-month free subscription with the purchase of an Aura Ring. Again, I definitely love checking my statistics every morning. I'm not sure if you guys have all used this yet, but it's a it's a fun thing to uh, help monitor sleep and health and readiness and things like that. So thank you so much to Aura. But moving on to our amazing panel again, Mario Fraioli, Sabrina Little, and Zoe Rome. I want to open up our conversation, guys. Thank you again for being here. Uh, I want to start by uh, teeing up Sabrina Little, the motivating factor behind this conversation was an article that you wrote for I Run Far a couple of weeks ago entitled The Grumbling Hive. So Sabrina, I want to pass the microphone to you first to just sort of summarize what the thought was behind that article and uh, yeah, what the what motivated you to write it. Okay, great. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, the term grumbling hive, it's a satire poem. It originally appeared in a book by uh, Bernard Mandeville called The Fable of the Bees. It was written in 1714. Um, and in the satire poem, you have a community, like a hive of bees, and they all seem to be flourishing, but they're individually motivated by greed and just personal interests. And so at some point, the bees start to develop virtues and the hive collapses and they realize, oh, wow, like this hive was sustained by vice. And without that, um, it can't function. And so when the poem came out, a lot of people were really confused. Um, they got angry at uh, Band Mandeville. They said, this is an incorrect depiction of what bees are like, but it wasn't about bees. Or they said, like, you seem to be celebrating vice. Like, why are you celebrating vice? And he's like, I'm not celebrating vice. And what he was pointing out was that there are, there was a certain hypocrisy in the people of his day. And that hypocrisy was that people were really interested in consumer goods. They were really interested in kind of the growing commercialization and having all these sorts of comforts in their life. But they didn't realize that having though that kind of vision of a good life would be sustained by different vices. So they profess to care about character, but actually the kind of end that they were oriented toward was sustained by vices. So the takeaway is really that there are certain visions of the good life that conflict with private virtue, um, or you can't 
orient yourself towards certain goods without having a sort of internal character impact um, in order to attain those goods. And so why this came up now is that there have been a lot of changes in the trail and ultra community, um, and a lot of them pertain to the kinds of concerns that Bernard Mandeville had, right, concerning commercialization and increased money um, and how paying attention to these goods might impact the character, impact the bees in the hive. So when we look at our restructuring, I mean, a lot of the changes are constructive things, right? They are things that make possible having a good life as a professional athlete in the sport. They open opportunities. They open possibilities for more people to learn about our sport and enter. And those are great things. But also having an interest in increased marketing and increased money might let other vices in the door that sustain those ends. And so it means we might be taking on Qualities like greed or qualities like vainglory, um, caring more about the image of the thing than the thing itself. Um, so I just wrote it as just a means of having frank discussions about the way our hive is being restructured, what kind of vision of success we have in the sport, and therefore what internal qualities come on board. Thank you so much for that fantastic summary. And for those who are in the chat who haven't read this article, I would 100% encourage you to do so. I posted a link to it at the very top of the chat, or you can just Google the grumbling hive I run far, and I'm sure it'll show up. But that was a great summary. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Uh, Mario, maybe we'll pass it to you since you and Sabrina share a love of philosophical thought. Um, what was your takeaway from the article and what things did it prompt you to start thinking about? Yeah, so I I was a philosophy major way back in the day and have been a longtime fan now of Sabrina's writing. And her column just I, I thought really made an an awesome analogy, um, as she just described, of of what's happening in the sport, in the community, in the industry of trail and ultra running right now. And I thought that her observations were just on point about the changing nature of the sport and the industry and the community right now. And I think, you know, by, by sharing those observations helps to generate awareness of what's changing and how that affects the soul of the sport and what it is all about and what's attracted many people to it in the first place, because I think we are at a bit of an inflection point. Um, but I don't think this is a, necessarily a unique period in time. I think these things are are cyclical and we're just going through, you know, a, a cycle right now where there's just, there's right now, there's just more money and interest coming into the sport. And with that money and interest comes temptation for people to serve their own self-interest rather than those of the metaphorical hive, like Sabrina had described. So, you know, it can attract people who are motivated by, um, you know, by a lot of those, let's call them just like external things rather than, you know, what you know, what it is that, that many people think of, of the soul of the sport. So, um, I just thought it was a, I thought it was just an on point, like observation and, and analogy. And it got me to think about just where, you know, where, where things are and potentially, you know, where they're heading. And, and I had been thinking about these things, you know, prior to reading her column, but I think by sharing, you know, Mandeville's the, the grumbling hive, I mean, I just thought I'm like, yeah, that's, that's like on the money. Like that is just a, an incredible analogy of, you know, kind of where we're at um, and, you know, what the, um, I don't want to call them consequences, but for lack of a better word, like let's go with it, but like what the consequences uh, could be moving forward. No doubt. Thank you, Mario. And Zoe, before we pressed record here, before we went live, uh, you said that you had not only read the article, but you had been sharing it widely and encouraging more discussion around it. So maybe before we move on to what Mario just mentioned, that being, is this an inflection point in the sport? Do you want to add anything to this topic of conversation or what your takeaways were? Yeah, I think for me, why I really love this article is it was challenging. It was conflicting and it asked more questions than it answered, which is something I always look for in what I'm reading. And I think the thing it really challenged me on was to examine where what I profess are my, like what I publicly profess to be my values, how that might conflict with how I live as an individual. And I think we all see that 
a lot as like, we all say we are in favor of maybe having a certain community. I think that there's a pretty popular, widely shared like assumption of what we might like to see the world look like. And I think individually, our actions don't always add up to what that is. And so I think it's always really interesting and challenging to be kind of pushed on that. And I think that, you know, trying to, everyone has an opinion about where they want the sport to go and where it is and examining how our actions might interact with that opinion is a really interesting place to start conversations. Yeah. Well, thank you, Zoe. And just to add my own color, to this and my own sort of reflection after reading, I think I've sort of developed the reputation as being the grow baby grow type guy, the hyper pro growth voice in the sport. And I've honestly caught a lot of criticism about that. And I have to say that after reading the article and reading through the comment section, it just has become really clear that there's a lot of people out there who are just not as optimistic about the trajectory that our sport is on as I have sort of publicly uh, been sort of aligning myself with. And so uh, I thought it started an amazing conversation, not only in the comment section, but among other people who I've spoken to in the community. And so that's why I feel like these types of conversations are so important for people like us who may have differing opinions as to what direction we're heading in and what we should be optimistic about and what things are legit legitimately concerning to get out in front of these issues and talk about them publicly. So Mario, you mentioned just a second ago that, you know, it feels like we're at a bit of an inflection point point in the history of the sport. I sort of share that view. Uh, is there anything you want to say about this current moment in the history of trail running? I don't know that I have anything specific to say right now, but I, as I had mentioned earlier, I do think change is cyclical throughout life, but certainly like within sport itself. And, you know, we're at a point in the sports history and trajectory where there are more and new people coming into it for various reasons. And then there are people who have been in the sport for a long time who may have had different reasons for, you know, getting into it. And I think anytime that happens, uh, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, conflict. And I don't mean that necessarily people like fighting with one another, but, you know, you have competing you know, you have competing interests. You have people who have been in something for a long time and are used to it being a certain way and are scared by change. And then you have new people who come in who don't really like some things about the the way the sport has operated or the community is. And they're, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to force change. And I think we're just at one of those moments right now, but I think that happens. Um, I don't know exactly how many years, but I think that happens on like kind of a cyclical basis. And I think we're just there right now, as it relates to the professionalization of the sport um, at the, at the athlete level. Um, I think in terms of, you know, consolidation with events and um, a lot of them falling under bigger entities and becoming, you know, bigger events, um, you know, with that, you know, creating series and and that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's just generally, you know, where we're, you know, where we're at right now. Yeah. Sabrina, do you have anything to add? I think your perspective on this topic is interesting because, you're also a professional athlete, right? I mean, all of us to one degree or another have a self-interest in the sport growing and, and succeeding, um, or at least maintaining its current state. Uh, but, you know, obviously with growth comes some scary things for some people. And as Mario just said, you know, the, I don't know, the history of the sport is very much a, a grassroots community oriented sport, but for somebody like you, Sabrina, who's a professional athlete, uh, we need also to have brands be successful in the market in order to sort of chase our dreams as professional athletes. What do you think about the current state of the sport as, or maybe in relationship to, or in comparison to when you came into the sport many years ago? Yeah, that's such a good question. I was just thinking about this recently because when I first came into the sport and I had like some initial success, I'd be approached by companies and it would be like, you can have two pairs of shoes yeah. and wear this kit. And it all felt like that was so exciting. Um, but that, I mean, that's just a level of development that it was at. And I didn't have like a 
grown up contract where my tax status changed probably until like 2013 ish. Uh, so yeah, it's been really interesting, I guess, to, because in the, I mean, in those early days, yes, I took running seriously and yes, I took it as seriously as I do now, but I would never call myself a professional athlete. Like that wasn't an identifier. Um, and moreover, I wouldn't be inclined to talk about it much because it didn't even have that kind of cachet to it or, or social recognition. And so I don't know, like I wouldn't even tell people really that I ultra ran, I would just say run. Right. And so now it has, it's just taken on a completely different identity and it's been fun and exciting to see it. And also just to see different opportunities for even younger runners just entering now and, and not even realizing like how much growth and momentum has like what the early days were like, like, for example, my first U S team, we had just like the dregs of remaining uniforms from like people like leftover from an old Olympics and we had to wear men's jerseys so that we could all like have matching ones. And I say things like that now and people are like, are you kidding me? Like now we have full support and can go there and things. So it's really exciting as an athlete at this moment in the sport, just to see those opportunities because it adds legitimacy to the kind of work you're doing and it's life affirming and vocation affirming. And those are really important, special things. Um, so speaking as an athlete, I mean, I, I, I'm not divided in the way that I am when I speak as a virtue ethicist. Like, I think it's, there's a lot of great stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what an interesting sort of contrast of things to think about, you know, thinking as a professional athlete versus, versus thinking as a virtue ethicist and a philosopher. And Zoe, what about you? Do you feel that we're at a bit of an inflection point as the editor-in-chief of Trail Runner Magazine? You have a unique position and a unique view of the sport. What are your thoughts about the current state? Yeah, I, I think it's a really human inclination to always feel like we're on the precipice of something. Like that helps us feel like we're alive at an important time and we only have the perspective of the past and not of the future. So I think it's really hard to assume you're on the edge of something when you just literally can't know what comes next. And so I think it's pretty normal to think that you're on the edge of the next big big thing. And it definitely does feel that way. I will add the caveat that I am still fairly young, both in the support, both in the sport and in my media career. But there are like, even so in the three short years, I've been a trail runner have been a lot of big changes and, you know, particularly in seeing how media covers the sport, how much media is covering the sport and how much more media is kind of coming out of the sport now, which is something that I'm really excited to see is more trail runners making stuff for by and about other trail runners and not necessarily waiting on mainstream outlets to jump in and maybe not leaving trusting people with coverage um, who aren't as much a part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, just to kind of add my own color, I do feel like this is a bit of an inflection point, acknowledging your point, Zoe, that it always kind of feels like that. (laughs) But I mean, I really do feel that this is a moment where we can have a massive influence on the future trajectory of the sport and where it is very important for people like us to speak in public about what the values and the spirit of the sport are to make sure that those are preserved. But I think, you know, if you look at some of the circumstances that I think are concerning some people right now for good reason, I mean, we've seen the consolidation of Ironman and UTMB coming together and putting together this World Series, which I think has a lot of people like a little bit concerned and also confused as to how it might impact the grassroots races. We've seen some of the biggest footwear and apparel brands in the world finally make a very concerted investment into our sport specifically, the likes of Nike, who's always had a trail team, but who is now, I have it on good authority, actually taking the sport seriously. The Adidas Terex team is massive and they're well-funded and they take it very seriously. Brooks is publicly said that they are going to be investing as much money in trail athletes as they do in road athletes. Saucony has 
a trail team now, and I've heard that they're making a very concerted push into the category. And so I think we're in a very unique position as a sport because we have these performance brands that I just mentioned, and then we still have sort of the classic outdoor brands like the North Face and Solomon and Hoka's sort of like in between those two categories. And then we see, you know, the rise of some new brands like Norda and Speedland and Atreyu. And it's just a really interesting time. And I think because we bridge the outdoor and performance world, brands are really seeing our sport as a place where they can grow their business, you know, because ultimately that's their bottom line. And then with the consolidation of the event side of the sport. I don't know. To me, it feels like a very interesting inflection point in the history of the sport. And, you know, to go back to the article, Sabrina, I think one of the things that really sort of struck a nerve with people was the talk about social media. And one of the vices that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here today and in the article was that of vainglory. Um, And it seemed to me like a lot of the community has been put off to one degree or another about sort of social media use in the sports. Is there anything that you want to say on this topic? I also want to get Mario involved here too, because he's got a unique perspective on the subject, but maybe set up vainglory for us, Sabrina. Yeah. So vainglory is just a vice that's preoccupied with, um, like image, um, wanting people to look at you. So it's, um, it's a daughter vice of pride, right? So pride is having an outsized love um, of yourself that crowds out love of worthier things. And then vainglory is specifically when you want, you know, your image uh, to be celebrated. And so it's a vice that's entwined in social media because it becomes all about the image. Um, And so the concern is, you know, if your motivation becomes for acquiring likes uh, or getting more eyes on you. Um, I mean, that doesn't necessarily support being a substantial person or a person with necessarily like integrity or um, humility or, you know, traits like the ability to listen well or prioritize other people or make the room you enter about the other people instead of about you. Like the image focus is it's not a great way to be a friend. It's not a great way to be a member of the community. And so if we're shifting too much attention on that, the worry is the kinds of qualities that are being reinforced there. Yeah. So I actually just pulled a quote from the article because I think it'll set up Mario really well, but you define vainglory as the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. And you say it is a trait Sorry, it is a tra- is a trait entwined in and reinforced by social media. It would be unfortunate if the image of the athlete became prized over the athlete's feats, or if an athlete's primary motivation to run uh, run far were uh, sorry were garnered were to garner approval rather than to challenge oneself. So, Mario, you have made a intentional. Uh, pivot away from social media. It's probably been a couple of years now since the last time you were on social media. And as a media personality, that's a pretty valuable avenue to promote your work. What uh, What do you think about the social media landscape or what motivated you to step away from it? Yeah, I stepped away actually the exact date, September 20th, uh, 2020. And the reason I I stepped away was largely because of you know vainglory really and and not specific to ultra running or or athletes I think it's more of a societal issue in general and it's very intoxicating I think for for a lot of people to seek that sort of stuff and on the athlete side of things um, it's I hesitate to say like it's part of the job, but it's kind of become part of the job to, you know, promote yourself and and what you're doing. And I mean, I, t- for me, like Instagram became like a me-stagram. Um, people are just posting about themselves and photos of, of themselves. And I remember when I joined Instagram, like, you know, way back whenever I remember my first post was like an apple and I liked looking at other like photography uh, and it kind of like got, you know, kind of got away from that. Um, but it became you know, it, it's addicting. And and for myself as well, like I felt that pressure as someone who 
you know, is in, in the media is a coach to use those avenues to, you know, talk about myself and there can be value, you know, there can be value in that. But I think what didn't feel good and right to me was, you know, and this is what became addicting was looking to see like, Oh, well, what's the reaction to this post? How many likes did it get? How, what were the comments? Um, and, and I sort of lost my own focus to be like, all right, am I, you know, are, are people paying attention to what I'm posting or are people paying attention to like what I'm actually doing, like as a coach, as a writer, as a, you know, as a, as a podcaster. And, and I needed to get my own focus back on that stuff rather than like, you know, the external validation of, of, you know, people like, you know, liking a poster, like leaving, you know, leaving comments. So, I mean, that was a big reason, um, you know, why I stepped away and, and just, and also just like constantly seeing that in, in a feed, um, it doesn't always make you feel good either. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of stuff that people post, even if it's not controversial, like it can be triggering, right? If, if someone's posting about how fast their, their workout was or whatever, like you play a comparison game. And I think there's a danger in that, um, as well. Um, but also I think, you know, I quit Twitter as well. And I think part of the reason I, I quit Twitter, and maybe this is something we talk about later in the conversation is there wasn't, I didn't feel there was a lot of productive discussion happening there and including on my own, because the nature of these platforms are, they are, you know, they, they sort of reward, um, you being on them all the time, but they also kind of incentivize you to, you know, react like immediately, um, and to be provocative. And pe- yeah. yeah. To be, to be provocative and, and to like, you know, to, to not, not because be careful how I talk about this, but, but to see like how people are going to respond, like you'll say something to see, you know, how, how someone's going to respond to it. And, and because of that, there's a lack of, I think, thoughtful discussion. I also think because a lot of this happens, um, behind, like behind a phone screen and is, is via text, like context gets lost, nuance gets lost. Um, and I, and I think that's, I think that's added to, you know, some, some problems of just conversation, you know, in, in general, um, I much prefer a format like this where it's like, okay, even if you have differing views on things, you can at least take the time to listen to someone. Um, and I think when you're, you know, when you're face to face more often than not, you'll be respectful, not always, but I mean, you know, people will be more respectful and just kind of like thoughtful in, you know, in their response. So, I mean, that was a very jumbled answer, but I mean, that's the gist of, you know, why, you know, why I, I stepped away and, and I knew it would be a risky move for me as well. Um, but, has it been know, a sacrifice professionally? Um, as of right now, no, it, it hasn't been. I mean, I've been fortunate because I do partner, you know, much like athletes do, I partner with brands, um, to support my work and allow it to keep going. And I do have, you know, uh, reader and listener support as well. Um, but in that regard, when it came time to talk about renewing, um, you know, renewing sponsorship for the next year, I, I have, I can say like, I haven't lost any sponsorship because I'm personally not on social media. Um, and, and my hope is that, you know, one, those are, those are good relationships because the sponsors see the value in, you know, what I'm like, what I'm actually doing, not, you know, what I'm saying on social media or how many likes I've gotten or how many comments something has, you know, has generated. Um, so, it, it hasn't to, to this point, but I mean, you know, time will tell, I mean, it, like yeah. a lot of athletes, you know, in this space, it's not much different, um, on the independent media side. I mean, I'm an independent contractor and, yeah. um, you know, right now I, you know, I've got some arrangements in place through the end of the year, but it, you kind of live like year to year on that, yeah. uh, you know, on that sort of thing. So it's like a pro athlete. Yeah. yeah it, it's not much different in that way. Like there's not a lot of security, you know, there's not a lot of security to it, but I mean, I, I quit social media well over a year ago personally, but it's, it's honestly never even come up as part of the discussion, which, yeah. you know, is, is a little bit of a surprise, but also very fortunate for me. Zoe, I don't know if you had a look at any of the comments on Sabrina's article, but a lot of them were disproportionately talking about social media and especially sort of like the promotion of sponsors and stuff. Do you have anything you want to add on this subject? Yeah, I think it's, you know, like all good things, it's complicated, right? I think I take issue with telling someone else how to make a living on your terms when you're like, 
you know, if you are just some guy with like a cozy job and you're trying to tell like female athletes that they shouldn't be hustling as hard to like, just make it work as an athlete, then I think that that's not great. But I also do wish that maybe we had a community where athletes were encouraged and supported to just be athletes. I don't think you have to be everything. I don't think you should be everything. I think if you're not a great writer and you're not a communicator, then you should be able to just athlete. Likewise, I think if you're a communicator and you're not a great athlete, then you should be encouraged and supported to communicate at the highest level. And I think that sometimes we've just really started to conflate and incentivize all the wrong things, all kind of in the same direction, which is like, super, it's just social media communication where you're basically just broadcasting kind of the same thing. You're commodifying your persona over and over again, and just shouting it into an echo chamber. And it does get pretty obnoxious. And like, as a consumer of as someone who's on social media, it, it really makes you think about how your attention is being weaponized against you to make decisions for someone else. Or as a creator of media, it makes me realize how much of my time and energy and intellect is spent generating stuff that basically just creates wealth and attention for someone else. And that's not a super great feeling either. And I just wish there were more platforms where creators, where athletes could get a sustainable level of support where they didn't have to hustle as hard. But I think ultimately when people critique athletes for that kind of thing, their critique is with capitalism and not the athlete. And they forget that because it's so much easier to yell at an athlete over Instagram. And it's so much harder to like create systemic changes and, and a society that's like a little more equal for all. What a great point. Thank you so much for saying that, Zoe. And I think one of the things that I chimed in on in the comments of Sabrina's article was just to encourage a little bit more empathy for the pro athletes who are paid to promote their sponsors. It is literally their job. And even though I've mentioned multiple times that I think this is right now the best moment ever to be a professional trail runner and that it's really the first time in the history of the sport where the pro athletes have the higher ground in the contract negotiations. Still, the vast majority of the pro athletes in the sport are being paid a meager sum who are genuinely doing it for the love and chasing a dream. And I think we should all be empathetic of those athletes. And I personally just feel that the vast majority of people are reasonable in their promotion, but I can totally understand the other side where people are just sick and tired of the me, me, me Instagram as Mario I mean, described in the But concept. it's like, are you tired of that? Or are you just tired of living in a system where <laughs> like that, that commodifies your attention from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you know? And I think, again, yeah. we get those things confused and it's so much easier to yell at Dylan Bowman than it is yeah. to create a more equitable economy. Yeah. Uh, ironically, I've heard from two athletes today who are in at Western States and who are thinking about not going because they can't afford to make the trip. So I would just, again, encourage empathy of the pro athletes. And for the pro athletes who might be watching, I think the same empathy is due to those in your Instagram feeds who are following you to make sure it's not always a me, me, me thing. But I think our sport is in a beautiful space with our great champions, right? Like the likes of Courtney DeWalter, who refuses to say a positive thing about herself, refuses to say anything that would come off as anything close to a brag. And similarly with Jim and Francois and Killian, I think the vast majority of our champions are really reasonable in terms of their promotion of themselves and uh, their sponsors. But, you know, moving on from the topic of, of social media, which again, I think, caused more reaction than I would have expected in Sabrina's article. I want to just go through some of the legitimate concerns that people have in the sport as it pertains to the growth. And one of the things that people have pointed out many times that I guess I was a little bit out of touch on is the rising costs to be a trail runner. Maybe I'll tee you up on this one, Sabrina. Again, you're a professional athlete. You get a lot of your expenses and your gear paid for. Have you spoken to people in the community? Uh, this goes into the subject of greed that you talked about in your article. Have you spoken to people in the community about the rising costs associated with trail running? And is there anything on that subject of greed that you want to touch on? Yeah, I mean, right. So as a professional athlete, you are shielded very much from that. Um, sometimes I just do the basic math on how many 
shoes I would have to buy in a year if I didn't just receive them. And it it's kind of makes me nervous about life on the other side. But yeah, I mean, even before I had full sponsorship, I mean, I used to get um, like for Christmas, I would ask for race entries in order <laughs> to be able to go to them because they, I mean, even a few years ago, they were not cheap exactly. Um, and yeah, I've heard a lot of um, just locally complaints about um, rising costs for race directors um, from like specific race directors um, having different races. But again, that's not an easy gig. Um, like the permits are expensive. And so, I mean, a lot of the costs are understandable. Um, but yeah, it's not it's, it's definitely not, not a cheap sport when you think about like all of the travel and if you need childcare and if you need the race entries, um, and yeah, races like Western States are, are kind of prohibitive if you don't have support in that way. Yeah. Zoe, what about you? I mean, again, I think you have a unique perch of observation into the sport where maybe you have more perspective on, the cost of equipment and how much it's going up or the cost of entry fees and how much it's going up. Have you guys done coverage on that over at trail runner? Yeah, we have, we actually, I mean, it's something I always try to be really sensitive to in gear reviews and really cognizant of when I'm writing about gear, like curating lists of gear is that we need to do it in a way that is like actually reflective of how people spend money in the real world and really try to give people genuine guidance on like where maybe their dollar is best spent or best not spent. Like I'm always a huge fan of pushing people to, you know, maybe find secondhand gear where they can or buy stuff from old past seasons when they can. Cause like with the exception of, you know, a few shoes, like, and eh, you know, does your daily road runner daily trainer need that much of an update? Probably not. And I think that it, it is, it is a huge challenge and we are definitely seeing costs of gear going up and we are definitely seeing people starting to notice and not feel so great about that. And I wish I had a better solution because I think oftentimes, again, when you see people getting angry, either at like gear companies or at race directors, it's like, well, I mean, the race directors, like typically mostly, especially at like mid-level or smaller races, like those people are not making a killing. They're working crazy long hours, doing their absolute best and getting mad at them because they had to like raise the cost 30 bucks just to, you know, cover whatever transportation fees they have to cover is, is maybe not the best use of your time and energy. And I think that it's, I don't know, I think in some ways it is just an inevitable part of not just the sport growing, but just like it, the way the world is progressing. And that, you know, hopefully if nothing else, it can be a pause and an opportunity for us to reflect on our consumer culture and like why we're spending money where we are and in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mario, maybe on this subject too, you and I recorded a podcast six or eight months ago now after the announcement of the Ironman UTMB merger, which sent shockwaves through the sport, which I don't think is an exaggeration. We've now seen that sort of start to materialize where we're starting to understand what that's going to mean for the sport. Do you have any thoughts on this topic of, of uh, costs and maybe the consolidation uh, of these events? Yeah. I mean, to reiterate something that I, I said in that conversation, um, and I've, I've said this for a few years now, I think in a lot of ways, um, trail ultra running is, was, now is becoming the new Ironman triathlon. And I mean, the fact that Ironman now, you know, kind of owns UTMB, I think is, you know, just really representative of, of that. I mean, you know, we, like Zoe said, like we, we do live in just a kind of society that is, you know, I, I don't want to say like based on consumerism. Um, and that has definitely trickled, you know, into, some of these sports, it's even happening like in, in road running now, which, you know, ostensibly shouldn't require as much gear as like a, a trail ultra. Um, and I think as new people come into the sport, you know, there is this, um, 
preconception they come in with like oh, i need i need all the gear uh, before they even get started and and they start adding that up and and it all all of a sudden just becomes unattainable right i mean you start adding like shoes and a hydration vest and i need poles and the race entry fee and i'm gonna have to travel to that race and things like sabrina said like childcare and everything it's like holy cow like you know all of a sudden the barrier to entry just got like a you know got a lot higher and i mean that's not happening it, that's not the case everywhere. I mean, there are still like a lot of grassroots events. There are shorter trail races where you might not need quite as much stuff, but I think there's so much emphasis and maybe part of this is media and just where the brands are focusing their energy, because as you said earlier, like their bottom line is to try and, and make money. Um, so they're, you know, they're putting a lot of emphasis on the, the big sexy races that, you know, are going to attract people and all the gear that you need for those races that they, you know, that they can then provide. Um, and I think what ends up happening is, um, you know, there are a lot of great grassroots events, which I, I hope continue to sustain and grow, but that get overlooked. Um, and I think, you know, certainly in, I think trail and ultra running often get lumped together. Um, but it's like trail running doesn't have to mean ultra doesn't even have to mean racing. Um, and, and I, I think it's important that that doesn't get lost, um, certainly in our, our coverage of what's happening, but also like from a lot of the brands themselves that are, are driving some of this, you know, con consumerism. So I think, you know, what I, I think what I'm trying to get at is, is the sport is um, acquiring an image. And I think right now, like, you know, the, the big images, you know, trail, ultra running, big mountain races, a lot of equipment, high entry fees, travel, you know, all of that stuff. And it's like, that's part of it. Um, but it's not all of it. And, and I think, um, you know, I think more needs to be done to bring attention to what else is out there. Shorter races, grassroots stuff don't need quite as much gear. Um, secondhand, like secondhand opportunities to, um, to get gear. I mean, I hand stuff down to people all the time. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, and it's because one, I, I have access to it, but two, you know, I talk to other people and they're like, ah, you know, I, I think I need a vest, but I, I can't drop like 150 bucks for, you know, yeah. hydration vest type of thing. So, I mean, there's definitely that out there as well. Yeah, well, good timing, uh, Mario. I want to go to the chat for something. Caitlin Morin had a brilliant idea saying, are there resources out there where we can find gear exchanges or donation spots? I'd love to pass some of my gear along to someone that could use it. And I mean, this is a simple solution, right, of us as a trail community to come together to, uh, yeah, address this potential problem of how can we be more inclusive? How can we make sure that those who can't afford the newest, most highly tech uh, technical piece of footwear can still get out and enjoy the trails and get all the benefits out of it that have touched each of our lives uh, profoundly in different ways. And we also had something in the chat on this subject from Gary Aaron Halt. This is on the subject of events and maybe this would be good for you, Zoe, just based off proximity. He asks, what can we learn from how the Leadville race series has gone? Because it seems that when Lifetime purchased the purchased Leadville, it changed pretty significantly. Do you have any comments about Leadville specifically or in general, this sort of race consolidation or I don't know, quote unquote, corporatization? Yeah, I think, you know, a, I think it's always important to preface these discussions with like, there are no heroes, there are, there are no villains in these discussions. Thank and if you, you use that framework, frequently it will guide you towards a less nuanced and less complicated understanding of what's going on. But I think that is actually a fascinating case study when you look at how, when big money gets involved with events, how that affects rural economies and how that affects the sport generally, right? I think that you know, back in the day, Born to Run came out, a lot of attention got put on a specific race, the Leadville Trail 100, and people felt like that was an inflection point as well, right? And it kind of was. A lot of attention started going to that event, to, to big mount, mountain hundreds, and I think that it did kind of encourage a bizarre myth building around the Leadville 100, which interestingly, like as someone that lives in a small mountain town in Colorado, a lot of these big events have pretty challenging impacts on small mountain town economies and mountain towns. Typically the amount of growth you're able to have is constrained by geographies. There's mountains, there's valleys. You just can only build on so much. Right. And Leadville is one of those places. It's a fairly small town. There's only so many Airbnbs. There's only so many motels. And when so much 
money floods in in a way that's a little less predictable and a little less sustainable, it can have a really lopsided impact on the most vulnerable people in communities. Um, like I know, for instance, one of my friends just happens to be the waste management person for the town of Leadville. Um, they actually have to like pay a ton of money after the race to get all of their trash and recycling carted out of the town because that influx of people is just too much for their infrastructure to really manage. And that's not always something that's as thought through by large companies as maybe would behoove them to do so. And I think that you just have to really take a super long lens and really zoom out and maybe look at impacts where you might not see it. Like, yes, the vibes are different, you know, like there's strobe lights at the finish line, there's music, there's, you know, the vibe is off. But I think even more importantly, we should be looking at how these changes impact vulnerable populations, vulnerable economies, and also, yes, like how they affect trail running generally, right? But like, it, you know, I think more people coming into the sport is generally a good thing and more money can generally be also a good thing. But I think it's really important to pay attention to the flow of that money because a lot less of it flows into the town of Leadville than one might suspect, even though like the town is also very dependent on the race series for many, many reasons. And there are lots of good things, right? Like there's that, I mean, there's a lot of myth building around the fact that the race was established in response to the molybdenum mine crash in the eighties. Yep. So like in some ways, outdoor recreation economies are a little less vulnerable than resource extraction economies. In other ways, they can be, they can function on really similar boom and bust cycles. And I think that that is something that we should look for when we see power being consolidated, when we see money being consolidated, particularly when it's being consolidated in places that are pretty vulnerable. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Zoe. That's great. And you mentioned the vibe, right? And I think this is also something that people have legitimate concerns about. And Sabrina, maybe you can tackle this. I think we all sort of view the culture as being so sacred to the sport. And it's something that we feel incredibly protective and defensive about, you know, like this sport is special and it can't change on that cultural level. What do you think we can do to sort of preserve that energy and that vibe that Zoe described into the future? Yeah. I, I mean, I think one important thing is just leaning into our local communities, um, like the local running groups, and really, I guess, define the terms of success in broader ways than just marketing attention, right? So we define ourselves, like historically have defined ourselves in terms of our stewardship to the local trails. And that's been reflected in a lot of, I mean, activities that local clubs do. And even just, I mean, to gain access to something like a Western States race, you have to do your trail time, like you have to invest. And I think just having momentum at the level of like the local communities um, in that way can be a great way to just safeguard the vibe, <laughs> safeguard like the way that we define ourselves. I also think honestly that there's reason for optimism that a lot of what we hold dear about ultra running is going to be preserved through the nature of the activity. And by that, I mean, like there are certain goods that are internal to ultra running. So for example, if you set out on a 100 mile run, it means you're going to have a lot of time to introspect and be alone with your thoughts and realize what kind of person you are. And you're going to have occasions to develop empathy with the other racers. And you're going to have to develop like the ability to suffer well and develop your patience and your perseverance. And insofar as you're still participating in the activity of ultra running, you have occasion to practice these things. So I think that, I mean, there are certain practices in, in society where I think marketing can take over and commercialization can just obviate the activity itself. But for ultra running, I think that because of the nature of our activity, I think the heart of it is still more or less safe. I agree. I agree. And Mario, this is something you and I talked about recently on your podcast, where I said that the people come into the sport are changed as a result. They don't change the sport when they come in. It's the opposite. Do you have any comments on how we can preserve the culture into the future as the sport continues to grow and professionalize? 
I don't know if I have any specific recommendations, but I mean, I think Sabrina's spot on in her, you know, her observation, I mean, and you as well, like it's, you know, it's going to attract a, a certain type of person who, you know, wants to, who wants to be changed um, and, you know, or wants to change something about, you know, about themselves. So, I mean, I think it will, you know, it'll filter, I don't want to say to like filter out like a, a lot of bad actors, but I mean, generally people will come in, you know, people will come into the sport because, um, you know, they're, they're seeking, you know, they're seeking something within themselves um, more so than, you know, something external. And if they are chasing something external, they may get that and then leave. Um, but I think the people who stick with it, who contribute to, you know, the culture are uh, by and large, motivated by many of the, you know, many of the same things. And that's where they find community. And hopefully that's what will help preserve that community. Yeah. One of the things that I mentioned in the comments section of Sabrina's article was, uh, is sort of a comparison to the sport of skateboarding, which, you know, back in the 1980s was for rebels and misfits, those who were the anti-jock, you know, it was the sport for the anti-jocks. And, my feeling is that as that sport has exploded in popularity and is now contested in the Olympics and the best athletes are multimillionaires, that it still maintains that sort of core feeling of being counterculture. And so my hope, again, me being sort of the, the optimist in the crowd and who's sort of developed that reputation is that trail running will have a similar uh, trajectory in that we can maintain the spirit while the sport grows. And as it, you know, sort of gains more notoriety and professionalizes and gets more money into it, hopefully the money doesn't corrupt. Cause I think that similar thing has happened in skateboarding and it's been okay. So yeah, do you well, have any on that? Um, I mean, I agree. I think that the nature of the sport does self-select for people with like pretty, you know, particular attitudes and ways of going, navigating the world. And that's one of the reasons that drew me to it. And I hope that it continues to speak to people who also kind of do have that like counterculture athlete curious strain in them as well. And I think that it does bear saying that like culture is something that has to be constantly cultivated. Right. And if you get lazy about it by telling people like by overly safeguarding it, I think you're doing yourself a disservice as well. And I think that oftentimes the people who tend to be the grumpiest about this maybe are the people who are not always safeguarding the most positive aspects of our culture. And they're not already, they're maybe safeguarding a status quo that is a little bit overly protective of like their perceived station or how much space they take up in the culture. And I think that you can grow the culture and it can shift and evolve in really positive ways that are almost truer to its essence than it was before it changed. And yeah. that's, I think, a lot of what we're seeing. Yes, really. Yeah, another great point. If I can chime in here too, I also don't think culture in this instance is necessarily universal and we can look at other sports to see how that's true. I mean, I mean, trail and ultra running is, is this huge thing. I mean, it could be everything from like a 5k trail race to, you know, a multi, you know, multi-day, uh, multi-state, you know, ad adventure, you know, type of thing and everything in, in between. I think there can be like a certain culture around, you know, these, you know, bigger, events that people travel to, but there can also be a different culture amongst the group of moms who meet every Saturday morning just to go, you know, run for an hour together on the trails. And, and they're all still trail runners, but like the culture of that is very different from the culture of this. And I see it in running too. I mean, we see it with competitive marathoners. The culture there is very different than the culture we see in track and field, which is very yeah. different from the crew and club culture that we see in a lot of big cities. Um, and so I think there, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, culture is, it's not, it's not just like, it doesn't have to fit one mold. Um, you know, I think you can, you know, you can find, uh, you can find your culture, you can find your people, you can get out of it, you know, what you want. And, um, you know, you don't like, and I tell us people all the time, like, you don't have to go run the big, you know, mountain ultra. If that's, if that's not your jam, you know, yeah. um, you, you know, you can, you can find something different, but I do think because of media, because of social media, because of corporate pressure, like there is, you know, there's an image that is, is trying to be carved. And, you know, I think this is human nature. People are like, well, I don't, I don't fit into that image. So I must not be a part of it. Um, yeah. but I, I think it's just, it's just showing that it can be, you know, it can be much more than just like one thing. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for that, both of you. And I think Zoe, yes, it's so true that culture always has to be constantly maintained. And that's why it's so important for us to have these conversations in public and get out in front of potential issues. I want to start winding down, but I want to talk about the positives of growth too, right? And Zoe, I think this is a, a great spot for you as well. Obviously, you're the first female editor-in-chief of Trailrunner Magazine. Trailrunner was recently acquired by Outside Magazine, and I see this similarly uh, to how I view the Ironman UTMB merger in that a big iconic brand that being outside recognizes that Trailrunner Magazine provides an incredibly big value to a sport that deserves recognition. And so outside as a media brand determined it was in their best interest to acquire your outlet. Let's uh, use that as a uh, an opportunity to kick open the door on the positives of growth in the sport. Yeah. Well, trail running, when you look at research, it's the fastest growing outdoor sport. So if you were going to put your money in a particular sector of the outdoor industry, that would be a very good one. Um, and I do think another, like I'm also an optimist, right? And I think that right now we're seeing more than ever money being spent in more interesting ways previously. And supporting storytellers who haven't always had the same platforms and like supporting more different kinds of athletes and investing more money into more creative projects. Like, I think there's a really interesting intellectual culture up and coming in the trail running world. And I am excited to see more and more money go to kind of support the ebb and flow of, of those projects. But, you know, again, as the first ever female editor of this magazine, that has been around a few decades. It, it is important, I think, to see different stories get that same kind of cultural support and recognition that historically haven't always been, I don't know, spread <laughs> as widely um, as they are now. And I think that that's a really, really good thing. And I think that, you know, there's kind of been this scarcity mindset in our sport, like of maybe feeling like we're going to get crowded out if more people come in or if more money comes in. And if we can adopt a mindset with more oriented towards abundance and understanding that, you know, more people coming in doesn't mean there's like a smaller slice of the pie for you. It just means the pie is bigger and that's a good thing. And if we can treat it as such, then we can ensure more opportunities for more kinds of athletes, more kinds of runners. And I think that that's a really, really good thing. And there are ways to view almost all of this, not with like, you know, only optimism, but like with, with the healthy skepticism, but, you know, not with just saying money is bad, growth is bad, because I mean, at some point, like you are the growth, right? Like I, you know, if you hate traffic, you are traffic, right? And that, you know, if you're pointing the finger at growth as a source of bad, then that can sometimes maybe be more a reflection of where your values are than where the community's values are. Thank you so much. So Sabrina, we got to start winding down now, but let's uh, end on some some optimism from both you and Mario. What are some of the reasons for hope as the sport grows and professionalizes? Yeah, I think just, well, when I think about the kinds of things that running has brought into my life and the ways it's formed me and like helped me learn discipline and and brought me friends and I just think that it's wonderful that more people will have that opportunity. So with increased exposure, it it means that more people have the opportunity to be edified by this great sport. And I mean, there's nothing bad about that. That seems great. Yeah. Mario, final thoughts. Yeah, I, I echo all of that. Um, and I guess what I'll what I'll add to as as the sport grows, um, you know, as brands start to invest more, not just in professional athletes. I mean, I, I hope it can, you know, professionalize this, the sport a little bit more. I'm um, just, cause I'm a fan of, of that. And I think this is an opportunity to like, really make it interesting on, you know, on that level. But my, my hope is, and I don't know if, you know, this, this hasn't fully happened yet, but I hope it continues to happen, um, as a sport grows is just making, um, the people who come into it and the people who are in it, you know, just, just more aware of not only like what it's, what it's about, but the environments that we're spending our, our time in um, realizing that we need to be stewards of those environments as well. Um, and if more people are going to be using trails like that, you know, 
it, it's good that more people are participating, but it also takes its toll like on the land. So I hope like along with that growth, you know, there's just more o- awareness and activation around like taking care of these places that, you know, we we hold so special um, and that are, you know, very natural. And, and I mean, there are a lot of benefits to like being out in nature, but we also have to take care of those those spaces. So hopefully as more people are getting out there, um, you know, there's more people who are investing their time and their money into preserving those environments. So, I, I mean, that's a you know, that that's my optimistic hope for uh, the growth of this of the sport and the community and the industry. Well, as expected, this is going to require a round two for the panel here. I think that was an amazing discussion, amazing start. But I think the environmental consideration probably deserves its own conversation. Mm-hmm. On its own, before we went live, we were talking about sort of the regional proliferation and being more inclusive regionally around the country is in a sport that I think admittedly can sometimes be Mountain West and West Coast <laughs> biased. So there's a lot of other things that we can talk about as a team here. But again, I think it's just really important for all of us as community members, not the four of us here on the Zoom, but everybody out there listening to understand that it's all of our responsibility to march into the future hand in hand. And we may disagree on some details, but we will always acknowledge that uh, we want the sport to succeed. And we should always acknowledge that each of us has, you know, our best interests of the sport in mind, even if we may be mistaken about some things and we can disagree again civilly and change our minds. And I think that's what makes trail culture so beautiful and so special. So, Thank you guys so much for joining us. For Sabrina Little, Zoe Rome, Mario Fraioli, my name is Dylan Bowman. Appreciate you guys joining us. We'll see you next time.